Please be seated. John the Baptist is quite a familiar character in the Bible, and boy, is he ever a character. He doesn't belong to any particular group of the social strata in first century Palestine. John is a maverick, a rogue preacher, an outcast, a greasy, long-haired hippie who probably wouldn't bother to bathe if he didn't spend his days standing in a river. John is Jesus' cousin, son of his Aunt Elizabeth on his mother's side. He'd be the one to baptize Jesus, but before that, John foretold the coming of the Messiah. That's why we have this text during Advent, when John predicts the coming of the one who will baptize the world with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's actually an apocalyptic scripture, and there's a bit of an apocalyptic theme that runs through Advent, too. We celebrate Jesus' birth, but we also look towards his rebirth, the second coming, in which many imagine that Jesus will return as a cosmic avenger, overturning the world order with sword in hand. And John, who frankly comes off as pretty angry in this text, seems all too eager to embrace that image of Jesus. John the Baptist was indeed angry. In this uh, scripture, it really breaks down into three sections. In the first part, John preaches fire and brimstone. Be good or else. The second part is calm. He answers questions, giving some good advice in language that kind of foreshadows how Jesus would answer similar questions. And then in the last part, the anger is back, separating the wheat and chaff, the threatening, the unrepentant with the eternal damnation. Reading from Luke, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. 
As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. If that's the good news, I'd hate to hear the bad news. <laughs> Let us pray. Gracious and everlasting God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations upon each of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose birth we await and whose name we pray. Amen. I think it's fair to say that as a younger man, I had quite a bit in common with John the Baptist. For one thing, we kept similar company. You see, first century Palestine, like all societies, was a lot like a high school cafeteria where people congregated in factions. There were the Sadducees. They were the more conservative party who ran the temple, worked closely with the Romans to maintain the status quo. I guess you could compare them to the football team or whoever is at the top of the social strata in high school these days. I never got close enough to the top to know who was up there exactly. There were also the Pharisees who sat at the cool kids' table. They weren't too keen on the Romans, and they were a little more anti-establishment, a little more indie rock, if you will, but still respected by their peers. They still held a, an important place in society. And then there were the Essenes. The Essenes lived in caves out in the desert. They read lots of scrolls and fantasized about a coming war between good and evil. While the Sadducees and the Pharisees were engaged in politics and culture, the Essenes sat in their basement playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> they were the outcasts, the misfits, the nerds of their day. And many scholars believe that John the Baptist was one of them. Until he wasn't. You see, John was even weirder than the rest of them. He was unkempt and wild, and he believed strange things that he shouted at anyone who would listen. We don't know if John was ousted or thrown out or if he simply left of his own accord, but by the time we find him in the Gospels, he's all alone in the desert. Like John the Baptist, I found that I didn't quite fit in well, anywhere. I was too weird, even for the nerds. Like John, I had long, greasy hair that was tangled and matted, like a cat whose owner had died. Like John, I ate disgusting food, not locusts and honey per se, but I used to stop by this deli on the way home from school where I could buy 
expired fried chicken for cents on the dollar. And like John, I used to believe that the world was coming to an end. In the last few years of the 20th century, this was a thing that people talked about. I'm sure you all remember the Y2K phenomenon, this thing where all of the computers and household appliances were going to stop working at the stroke of midnight on the last day of 1999, sending humanity into a new dark age. There was also a lot of talk about the prophecies of Nostradamus and hidden messages in the book of Revelation. A lot of people believed that the second coming of Jesus was right around the corner, that he'd be back at the turn of the millennium. And while I wouldn't say that I was sure of it, I thought it was entirely possible. And truth be told, I longed for it. You see, I had one more thing in common with John. John was angry. I don't know if I realized it at the time, but in the 1990s, I was really mad at the world. Resentful. Rejected. I was a teenager, and a very uncool one at that. I listened to angry music, and I bristled at authority, and I had no idea how to make friends. I lived in a worn-out factory town, its best days long behind it. And when I looked out at the world around me, I saw terrible injustice. I saw unfair systems that were rigged to favor some people over others. I was 17, and everything looked broken. Maybe the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, was the only thing that could really wipe the slate clean. The only thing that could quench my angst-ridden, adolescent desire to watch the world burn. And I wonder if John the Baptist felt that way too. I like to think that I've mellowed out over the years, that I'm a pretty easygoing, devil-may-care, slow-to-anger kind of guy. I seldom raise my voice, and I never raise my fist. I'm not especially fond of conflict, and my tendency is to diffuse tense situations rather than escalate them. But if I'm being honest, being a father to two young boys has kind of challenged that narrative. Now, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but there's a lot of yelling in my house these days. Most of it comes from the kids, but occasionally I do find myself getting dragged into its orbit and letting it get the better of me. You see, my boys, uh, they're going through one of these really adorable phases where they completely hate each other's guts. <laughs> now, by way of example, uh, they'll sometimes play with each other, each of them with their own toys when they're not fighting over you know, whose toy belongs to who. My youngest, Levi, he likes to play with this uh, talking Incredible Hulk. You know, he, he talks a lot. He says things like that and, and, you know, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry and, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, Ethan, my older son, he likes to play with this, this cowboy doll from the Toy Story movies. You know, y'all, many will recognize him as, as Woody. His name's Woody. Um, but for some reason, Levi, presumably to annoy his older brother, insists on calling him 
Buddy <laughs> instead of Woody. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, <laughs> but this has been a source of terrible controversy and indignation in my house these past couple of weeks. His name is Woody, Ethan tells his brother. Buddy. No, Woody. Buddy. Woody. Buddy. Woody. Buddy. His name is Woody! Ethan screams. Stop acting like a baby! I'm not a baby, Levi shouts. I'm Levi. Baby! Levi! Baby! Levi! Enough! I finally scream, unable to take it any longer. Stop yelling! You're yelling, Ethan replies. No, I'm not! Yes, you are. Fine, I'm yelling. Why are you yelling, Dad? I don't know! A silence descends, broken by little Levi, who points at the doll and says, Buddy. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I don't like me when I'm angry. But the truth is I'm angry more often than I care to admit. It's not just the irritation of constantly bickering siblings. I see things all around me in this world every day that make my blood boil. Anger is not a new emotion, but I feel like the world is just simmering in it these days. Everything is so polarized and politicized, a world of lines where everyone has chosen a side and everyone else is an enemy. Outrage is ubiquitous. It's exhausting. That's one of the reasons I had to get off Facebook. I couldn't take it anymore. You know, that and uh, all my ex-girlfriends trying to talk to me like, like I was the one that got away. Get over it already, you know. <clears throat> there was an article in the Christian Science Monitor last week called Outrage Nation. Can America overcome its addiction to anger? It addresses this issue of distinctly 21st century American anger and blames a lot of it on the rise of social media. Now, like I said before, outrage is nothing new, but Nancy Cohen, a Harvard-based historian, argues that social media works like an accelerant in turbulent times. We never had that particular lighter fluid of social media available as a conduit, she writes, as a flame creator in the history of global politics. And as the writer of the article points out, without the natural regulating effects of face-to-face -face encounters, the physical rush of unmediated fury can also become addictive, drowning out the more demanding emotional responses of empathy and moral reflection. The end result, as we've all seen, is terrifying. Families and friends torn apart by small differences of opinion, resentful young men mowing down crowds of people with their guns and their cars, Schools vandalized with swastikas and threats of violence, and politicians hurling insults at one another on television or online. 
If John the Baptist had a Twitter account, it would not be pretty. You brood of vipers, it would likely read. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And he'd probably have a lot of followers, too, just like he did back then. Any social media CEO could tell you that cultivated rage is good for business. Now, that's not to say that this outrage is entirely inappropriate. There's a lot to be legitimately angry about today, just as there was in first century Palestine. And I'm not saying that John the Baptist was a bad guy by any means. Actually, he had some good things to say in that speech, you know, about sharing your coat with someone who doesn't have one, or not extorting people, and being satisfied with your wages, and all that good stuff. But I think John has a lot of history, maybe some trauma, that we don't know anything about. Something is fueling his rage. And anger is complicated. But I would argue that Jesus handles it better than John, better than most of us. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that Jesus was prone to angry outbursts too. He overturned the tables and chased the money changers out of the temple, they'll say. Well, that's what they always say because that's really the only time that we hear about Jesus completely losing his temper. The only time. Yeah, he got angry. Of course Jesus got angry. But he wasn't inclined to shouting or calling people names all the time, like John the Baptist or my kids. Jesus was confrontational but calm. Once he makes it to Jerusalem, he spends the better part of a week arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple. And these conversations are interesting. Jesus has almost no common ground whatsoever with these guys. But if he's angry, he doesn't let it get the better of him. He sticks to the issues without attacking people. Is he a little bit passive-aggressive? Yeah, probably. Does he bait them into saying things that make them look foolish? Absolutely. But he doesn't make it personal. In the article I referenced earlier, the author makes a distinction between righteous anger and what psychologists call narcissistic rage. Righteous anger, of course, is an appropriate reaction to injustice. But narcissistic rage takes everything personally, and its associated outbursts tend to manifest in personal attacks. My own adolescent anger was a kind of narcissistic rage. Feeling rejected by the world, I was inclined to lash out at it. And I can't help but feel like John the Baptist has some of this going on too. But the tricky thing is that righteous anger and narcissistic rage are sometimes difficult to distinguish from one another. Aristotle once wrote that anybody can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, and to the right degree, and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power. That is not easy. 
I know I've shared this story before, but bear with me a moment. There's an old Japanese legend about a samurai whose master was killed by an assassin. Furious, the samurai wandered the land for many years, seeking justice for his master's death. And eventually, he, he finally corners the man's killer, and he defeats him in single combat. Now the assassin is cornered and disarmed and helpless, and the samurai finds himself filled with an unquenchable rage as he's about to deliver the killing blow. But all at once, he has a moment of clarity, and he pauses, takes a step back, sheaths his sword, and walks away. Because at that moment, he realizes that if he acts in anger, there can be no justice, only revenge. Now John, like so many in his time, believed that the Messiah would be a warrior who would destroy the Romans. In Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, John is portrayed as a man who continually tries to steer Jesus in this direction. The axe is already at the foot of the tree, John says. And in the film, Jesus has a vision of John literally handing him an axe. John is angry and he thinks that Jesus will be the one to dispense his justice. But is it justice or is it just revenge? Of course, things didn't go John's way. Jesus was a pacifist. But people could not seem to shake the notion of the Messiah as a warrior prince. They believed in it so badly. They longed for it. They wanted a Messiah who would come and destroy all of their enemies. So they took John's predictions about the first coming of Jesus and they applied them to the second coming of Jesus, often portrayed as the end of the world. This time, He'd come back as a conqueror, wreaking a terrible vengeance upon unbelievers and the powers that be. Last time was one thing, but this time, Jesus would baptize the world with fire. In Ravenna, Italy, there's a chilling mosaic of Jesus, wielding a cross as if it were a sword, a serpent and a lion crushed beneath his heels. But I just don't see it. It doesn't resonate with me. I, I see Jesus, the child in the manger, the man of Nazareth, the preacher of peace, the manifestation of God's love on earth. That's who Jesus is. And that's who Jesus will always be. And every year at the end of Advent, we celebrate his birth as he comes again and his word is born anew. I still have a lot in common with John the Baptist. My hair's a lot shorter these days, but it's still pretty unkempt. My diet is still questionable, and if I'm being honest with myself, I'm still pretty mad a lot of the time. I hope that anger can inspire me to work for justice rather than vengeance. I hope I can be less like the Hulk 
more like Woody, less like John, and more like Jesus. And I hope you can all forgive me and that you all still like me, even when I'm angry. Amen.